Who am I? Where is my life heading right now? Does God love me? What is God's will for my life? Would anyone even care if I was no longer around? How much time do I still have left on earth? Is the future of my life truly prepared in advance by an all-knowing God? Or is the future of my life actually in the hands of a risky outcome, like that of a roll of the dice? You know, a blindfolded, hope for the best, cross your fingers, flip of the coin, luck of the draw kind of life, made up of random chance, and meaningless coincidences that in the end add up to nothing. Personal questions like these, which did you notice, I asked all in the first person. Friends, they're common to all of us. Man, woman, boy, and girl. Perhaps we haven't asked all of these questions before, but the longer you live, I'm confident you will. As human beings made in God's image, we are inquisitive creatures. We were created to know and be known. We were created to know and be known. You already know this from your own personal experiences. For example, we like to know what's going to be for lunch after church. Don't ask the person sitting next to you. It can be distracting, but we want to know, right? My stomach's growling. We like to know if we pass the test or not. We like to know what's going on in the news. We like to know what's going on in other people's lives. We like to know what other people think of us. We like to know if we're right or wrong on an important issue. And for those of us who might consider ourselves serious-minded Christians, or I would just say faithful Christians, we want to know what God is doing in our lives. We don't want to guess. Does he really care about how I'm doing today? Does God have good plans for my life? Is God working in my life right now? And if he is working in my life, where is he? Every honest and humble Christian wants to know what God is up to because we want to know what God wants us to do. But friends, can we truly know ourselves accurately? apart from knowing who God is accurately? Can we truly begin to understand what we're supposed to be doing with our brief life before we understand something of what God is like? For those of us this morning who already know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, friends, how should God's incomprehensible, intimate, and inspecting knowledge of us transform our pursuit of knowing, delighting in, and trusting in the Lord. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 300 and 301. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, take that as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 139. This morning, we come to the end of our psalm series that we started off here in this 2024 year. And if you've missed any of those psalms that we started off with these first couple of months, I'd encourage you to go back, 
listen to them on the church podcast. I hope this series has been encouraging for you as we've walked through the Psalms, or at least a few of them. And I pray this morning that Psalm 139 would be one of those Psalms that you and I cling to as we come to encounter our personal God who knows us far better than we know ourselves. Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. As you see in the heading, we read that David is the author of the psalm. The background from which David wrote this psalm is unnamed or unknown. That means David could have potentially written this psalm at any point during his young or adult life. However, one clue we do get comes from David's passionate words that seem somewhat jarring and maybe even a little bit out of place, it seems, towards the end of the psalm. I don't know if you caught that. Look at verses 19 to 22 with me. 
We see David offer up an imprecatory prayer. Uh, Imprecate means to invoke evil upon or invoke a curse upon one's enemies. Imprecatory prayers are found in the scriptures. They are prayers to God to bring about justice on the wicked. So let me just clarify that. If you're new to the Bible or you're just trying to rightly interpret really hard and emotionally filled texts like that, when imprecatory prayers come up in the scriptures, this is not speaking about someone you don't like in your cubicle. This isn't the person who's in the hair salon running their mouth talking about people and they just annoy you. This isn't even someone who cuts you off in traffic or puts you in a bad mood. No, no, no. You don't be calling down imprecatory prayers on Rogers, folks. No, no, that's not what we're going on here. The wicked here are those described by the spirit-wrought scriptures as those who do not fear God. They unrepentantly dig their heels in and practice unrighteousness. They love sin and they contend against God's kingdom, against God's king, against God's Messiah, against God's people, against God's word, against God's will, and therefore they are against God himself. The wicked are the opposite of the righteous. The wicked hate God, and they remain in their unbelief. The latter, the righteous, are those whom the Lord, by His mercy, makes His own and enables them by His very Spirit to love and do righteousness, which pleases the Lord. Imprecatory prayers are mentioned all throughout the Psalms, many by David. But friends, these prayers are not about personal vengeance. As you pay attention to those texts really carefully, people can take this stuff out of context. This isn't David mudslinging bad words to people, getting someone back. No, these prayers in Scripture are more about God vindicating His own glory. God protecting His own people. God fulfilling His will and not our will for His name's sake. So look with me again, starting in verse 19. I want you to see it. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood. This speaks of their callousness and their cold-heartedness to take innocent life. Paul, or David rather, says, depart from me. You don't want to have anything to do with them. He goes on to say, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Just as a pastoral word of counsel, Anytime you and I read imprecatory prayers as Christians, we live on the brighter side of the cross today. That means we should read these prayers through the lens of the bloody cross and through the lens of the empty tomb. The gospel teaches us, friends, before we became one of God's kids, we were his enemies. We, friends, deserve to be slayed. We Friends deserve to have God's wrath poured out on us. We deserve to have David's prayer answered about us. What does Romans 5, 8 to 10 tell us? Romans 5, verse 8, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, that means enemies of God, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. That means we should pray for the wicked and pray that they be saved. We should also pray if the wicked is not repenting and they are doing you harm and other people harm, that we would remind ourselves that judgment day is coming. There is coming a day that the Supreme Court will be nothing but a Lego stand compared to that day. Friends, as we consider whether someone in our life is wicked or righteous, a sheep or a goat, a child of God, a child of the devil, a true Christian or a false convert, friends, we should be slow and discerning about making judgments on people. We should be slow and discerning about how we make judgments on people. We should only make judgment calls on people where Scripture clearly tells us to do so and go no further. For example, a handful of verses plainly tells us, you will recognize a tree by its fruits. Matthew 7, 16. Matthew 7, verse 20. Proverbs 26, 4 says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. 2 Corinthians six fourteen: do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or consider where a local church is called to make evaluations and render judgments on someone's lack of repentance. That means their profession of faith is being called into serious question through that loving process of corrective church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13, but now am I writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have you to do, or what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Friends, just that little hand sampling of scriptures, it plainly tells us we have to make judgment calls as Christians. We have to make judgments. We have to render some type of discernment so that we can actually obey those texts. That's both as Christians and as local churches. However, we should not make final judgments on anyone's soul. That is God's sole responsibility and not ours. I mean, think about it. Can you see people's hearts perfectly? Do you have all the information there is to know to make a perfect judgment about anyone in this world? Well, friends, we, we can't. We're not powerful enough, we're not wise enough, we're not holy enough to make final judgments on anyone. That's why we're called not to take vengeance on our enemies. They give place to the wrath of God, Romans 12, 19. We are called to protect others when we can. Appeal to the civil magistrate, the civil authorities, in care for those who are being harmed, Romans 13. We are called to appeal to church leaders to protect the flock if there are things going on in your own life, Acts 20, 28. We should pray for our enemies' repentance. Uh, we should pray for ourselves when we're being unjustly treated by those who are wicked. That we should pray that we would be meek and patient, knowing how God has been patient with us. In fact, God's patience shining through us could actually soften a hardened heart you're ministering to. What does Proverbs 16, 7 say? When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes his enemies to be at peace with him. Nonetheless, the rest of this psalm, as David's talking about something going on in his life, I think it happened many times in his life, so I think it could be applied to all over the place. Uh, David is 
making this really daunting and heavy prayer for the wicked and God's justice over the wicked in light of a deeply personal and deeply relational and deeply sweet and comforting psalm. In fact, the entire psalm from start to finish is David's conviction and David's experiential knowledge that everything in his life is under the close, caring, and watchful eye of the Lord. And that's both the bad things and the good things. This psalm bleeds and sweats with the doctrines of God's absolute sovereignty over his creation. And we're not talking just the stars, the moon, the planets, and gravity. Not even just the nations, the kings, and groups of people. We're talking about individuals. This psalm is written in the first person pronoun, I. David's writing as an individual. And he represents in many ways what is true of us, who are followers of Jesus Christ. If you fear God, love God, and are trusting in his mercy and not your good works to make it to glory... Friend, Psalm 139 is very much applicable to individuals in this room right now. Friends, Psalm 139 is also going to be a good challenge to us living in a modern age. If you work in medicine, you love science, you love technology, you're about to study in the university next year, or you have been. Friends, we live in an advanced scientific age, a modern mind, with many people that roam around teaching many of our young people from a naturalistic worldview. You know what naturalism is, right? Naturalism is the belief system that the material world is all there is. It states that there's nothing supernatural or spiritual in the world, and therefore there is no God. The world was not created. Basically, nothing became everything. That's what you get when you have a naturalistic worldview. This is the atheistic worldview that so many people say they believe. But in reality, the way people actually live, if you watch the average atheist live out their convictions, they're deeply inconsistent. They live with a moral compass. They don't want to die. All of this screaming God's creation in our conscience, they know God exists, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Even though in their mouth they say there is no God, they go to bed at night knowing he really does exist because God has made it plain to them. The truth of the matter is, the universe did come from nothing, but that doesn't mean it didn't come from someone. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, not nothing, created what is and brought all there is into being. So if that someone is God who created everything, and that includes everyone, we serve an eternal, purpose-filled God who actually gives us real purpose, real meaning, real order, good laws, true freedom, and objective truth for our life. As Andrew Walker reminds us, the God of the Bible is not a God of chaos or randomness, but order and purpose. So, what are three things that we learn about God himself in Psalm 139? Hope you're taking notes. I'll give you those three key things that we learn about God. We're going to grow in our theology this morning and focus on Him. First, God is omniscient. God is omniscient. 
That means God is all-knowing. Unlike us, God never learns anything. He knows the past and present exhaustively. He knows the future because he's already ordained the future. That's what we said in the very first catechism question. There is no difference at all, friends, between what God knows and reality, what is. Friends, even our hearts this morning are an open book that he's reading. Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. Number two, God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. That means God is always present everywhere at once. Now, first of all, let me give you another theological category about God. He's transcendent. Can we say that together? God is transcendent. That means he's distinct from his creation. He's far above his creation. He is outside of time and space from his creation. The Bible speaks of God's transcendence by stating that he fills the heavens above. Friends, even before the world existed, from everlasting to everlasting, he's always been God. Psalm 90 verse 2. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. Let's work on that one together. He is imminent. That doesn't mean he's in a hurry, like I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. No, it's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Listen to this one. Joshua 2 verse 11. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He's both. Where is God? Everywhere. Heaven, earth. He's transcendent. He's imminent. If your child says that in your next devotional, Give a hallelujah to Jesus. God's immensity means that he manifests his presence on earth and dwells among his creation. Hence, he is omnipresent. Always present everywhere at once. No human being of the seven billion on this planet can hide from him. Like Jonah learned the hard way. You can run, but you're going to make your life deeply painful and problematic if you try to run from God. Think of Adam and Eve when they sinned against God in the garden. What did they do? They hid from God and themselves, sewing up their bodies with fig leaves. People, this is an omniscient, all-knowing God. What are fig leaves going to do? Shame and bushes and hiding behind trees. It's ridiculous. But that's what sin does. Sin makes us think. We can hide things from him. As one author has said, God is neither shut up in any place nor shut out from any place. Thirdly, God is omnipotent. Omnipotent. God is all-powerful. God is powerful enough to do all that he has promised. No king, no army, no nation, no one can stop his hand from doing what he has decreed. Nothing is impossible for God. No one is more powerful than him. What he promises is as good as done when he said it. It will be brought to existence because God knows what is reality. So let's jump in the first part of the deep end of who God is. 
God's omniscient. In verses 1 to 5, David makes it utterly apparent that everything that could be known about David, I mean everything, God already exhaustively knows about him. Look at me and starting in verse 1. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hand me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Uh, recently, my family has been watching a television show. It makes me wonder if their future is going to be in Homeland Security or something. Julie has begun watching it, and now the kids are little experts in watching it too. I think, Susan, you may have recommended it to Julie. It's called To Catch a Smuggler, a National Geographic documentary about Homeland Security officers working to stop the flow of illegal contraband in America's airports, seaports, and land border crossings. Not exactly let it go. It's basically a sophisticated version of cops or live PD. These officers at airports closely watch people they suspect smuggling illegal drugs into the United States. You get to watch them interrogate, watch people sweat, watch how they dress and how nervous they are and weird and just odd in the airports when they know they've done something wrong, when they've done something illegal, knowing they got something they're hiding. Well, here in verse 1, David says God has done what no top-notch security team could ever do to him. God himself has searched me, David says. The word literally in the Hebrew means to investigate thoroughly, to be examined and found out completely. More than simply checking David's bags. More than simply making David take a lie detector. More than simply David having his cell phone confiscated. This is an all-encompassing, total exposing, complete internal and external x-ray scan on David's life. His soul, his body, his schedule, his mind, everything about him is always naked and exposed before God. Friends, the same is true for you and I. God has a full body, total soul, complete exhaustive read on your schedule. He knows everything that could be known about you. And he knows everything that could be known about me. As J.I. Packer once said, I can hide my heart and my past and my future plans from those around me, but I cannot hide anything from God. I can talk in a way that deceives my fellow creatures as to what I really am, but nothing I say or do can deceive God. He sees through all my reserve and pretense. He knows me as I really am, better indeed than I know myself. I think Packer's right. I think he's echoing exactly what David's saying in Psalm 139. This is more than simply a background check on our past, friends. This is far greater than someone getting a search warrant to rummage through all our property in our homes. This searching out by God is 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a searching out that leaves David and it leaves us 100% in view all the time. Before a holy, loving, all-knowing God who never sleeps. He never gets tired. He never takes his eye off the road. His eyes, friends, are always on us. The Lord never took his eyes off David. You know why? Because he loved David. The the Lord never takes his eyes off any of you who love the Lord too. You know, one of the most stressful things for me at Walmart or Target is trying to figure out where my kids have gone. Julie, ear muppet. It's hard to be in all places at once. Daddy, I want to go here. Daddy, I want to go there. Okay. I'm playing zone now. You know, we've got, we've got Avery in the girls' clothes. We've got Noah and Titus playing video games. And I'm just hoping and praying that in God's common grace, I'm going to be able to find both of them in the next 20 minutes. I'm not a bad father. I'm just making the point. I'm not omnipresent. I can't be everywhere at the same time, and neither can you. You see, friends, why Psalm 39 is so glorious and so sweet and so comforting, that the Lord never takes his eye on us, is because he loves us more than anyone else ever will. That's why David uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, or O Lord, there in verse 1. And he combines the subject, who God is, Yahweh, with the verb to know. The word to know, yada, it means intimate communion and deeply personal knowledge of another person. For this goes far beyond just knowing some facts about someone. This goes beyond just knowing some surface level information. This goes into knowing the heart of someone. Their secrets, their thoughts, their sins, their joys, their everything. And sometimes it's even used to speak of an exclusive relationship, like a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. They belong to one another. What David says, O Lord, you have searched me and yada, known me. Means the Lord has seen everything about David, the worst about him, and still loves him. That's why then David describes God's intimate knowledge and care for him by covering the entirety of his life. David and all God's children is the apple of God's eye the object of his love, the masterpiece under the microscope of his care. So in verse 2, he begins fleshing that out. In verse 2, you see, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. And David begins fleshing this out, and he says, God knows when I sit down on my recliner. God knows when I'm sitting on my couch knitting a sweater. God knows when I'm watching How to Catch a Smuggler. God knows when I get up to get something to eat. David mentions then how God discerns all his thoughts from afar. That means God's never having to catch up with what's going on in David's life. Before and during David's thought process, God knows it all. He doesn't have to go anywhere. He doesn't have to do anything. He knows our thoughts from a far distance. 
That word discern there means to separate or to distinguish. You ever met someone and you say, are you reading my mind again? That's not what's going on here. God doesn't read anyone's mind the way we would read anyone's mind. You ever taken a spoonful of sugar, put it in your hand, and try to parse out every little granular of sugar and then look at them individually in your hand? That's the idea here. God can distinguish, parse out, and separate every granular thought in our minds. And then in verse 3, not only does David know our secret, God knows our secret thoughts and our secret intentions. David says that God searches out my path and my lying down. That word search out can mean to winnow or sift, to scrutinize all of David's decisions, all of David's direction in life are microscopically analyzed by God. So much that David says God is acquainted with all his ways, all his travel plans, even when he goes to bed at night. That's just another way of saying God is 100% aware of everything you and I do. Paul David Tripp poetically puts it this way. You see me on the mountain peak, in the lowest valley, in the forest density, slipping between urban towers, sliding behind my desk, walking alone, lost in the throng, opening the next door, leave something behind, propelled across oceans, once again at home, pulling the covers over me, sitting before that glowing screen, huddled and quiet thought. No location hidden, no action unseen, never lost in the crowd. It often haunts me that I am always exposed, always under the unceasing watch of your righteous eyes. There is no hiding place, no escape from your holy presence. But your eye on me is also my eternal comfort. You look on me with the eyes of a father, always guiding, always protecting, always providing, always preparing the way. You see my burdens and my grieving. You see my laughter and my rejoicing. You see my doubt and my fearing. You know my hopes and my daydreaming. You hear my praise and my weeping. I know you can see and care for me. So when I feel exposed by your holy eyes, I will remember that Jesus is my righteousness. And when I feel alone, I will bask in the comfort of knowing your eyes watch over me. And in your watching, there is safety. No location hidden. No action unseen. Friends, this type of knowing God and God's knowledge of us does that make you afraid this morning? Look back over this past week. Knowing what we just heard about God and His perfect knowledge of us. Does it leave you a little uneasy and convicted? Or does it also bring you a timely word of encouragement? The one thing you're most clinging to right now. For David, it brought him immense comfort, at least at this point in his life. 
Friends, are you going through a rough patch in your marriage right now? Is parenting hard? Are you feeling lonely? And it bothers you almost every night? Do you feel overwhelmed by the demands of life? Stressed? Not sure how you can make it another day with that health issue. That memory of sin from your past. Dealing with that painful feeling of being overlooked, ignored, forgotten by people you love. What do you do, friends, when you know what you're facing and God sees it? How do we connect God's omniscience to our pain? How does it touch down and transform our sorrows, transform our sin, transform our suffering into joy and thanksgiving and life with hope again? How do we connect these two? How does heaven and earth collide into a life transformed by God? We remember the place where omniscience omnipresence and omnipotence met the God-man and sinful man at the cross. God saw every wicked thing his people would ever do. He saw only perfection in his son for an eternity of an eternities and God the Father gave heaven's best in God the Son to be crushed, to be punished, to bear the penalty of the sins that God has seen perfectly in our lives. For what purpose? To reconcile us to this all-knowing God insofar that he gives us Jesus' perfect life. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he accomplishes what we need. What do we need? We need a covering We need new clothing. We need a new record. We need a new hope. And friends, when we put our faith in Jesus, who bore our sin, rose again from the dead, God in his omniscience can look at Chris and Ian and Cole and he sees the righteousness of his son. That's how heaven touches down with earth. That's how Psalm 139 can cause his people to sing again. Sin, suffering, regrets, and physical, whatever, all of it is when we remember the cross, when we remember the empty tomb, when we remember Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, who needs to hear that this morning? You were on his heart in eternity past. You were on his heart when he hung on the cross. You were on his heart three days later when he got up from the dead. You were on his heart right now as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father praying for you. Praying for you, Angie. Praying for you, Marcy. He's praying that your faith may not fail and he can hold you fast. If his eyes were on you at your worst, would he take his eye off you now that you have heaven's best closed on your account? 
Verse 4, David is amazed. <laughs> David comes to grip that even before he speaks, even before a thought goes down the elevator to his mouth, the Lord knows what he's going to say. <laughs> that sounds a lot like Jesus teaching in Matthew 6, right? Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Friends, if you're discouraged in your prayer life, listen to this Puritan quote by Ezekiel Hopkins. He says, if you but whisper your prayer, God will hear it. What is whispered on earth rings and echoes in the courts of heaven. Your voice that cannot be heard beyond your closet fills all heaven with sound. Just think, God is present in the room with you. Which is why in verse 5, David senses the close presence of God through the loving limitations God has put on his life. Look at verse 5. David says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That phrase, you hem me in, was used throughout the Old Testament to speak of armies besieging and barricading a city. In other words, they were encountering an opposition, an opponent, and sealing off any possibility for them to escape. It means to enclose. One translation puts it this literally, you squeeze me in. Then the second phrase in verse 5, your hand, it literally means the palm of God's hand. It's a close grip signifying God saying, I'm not letting you go. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? In John chapter 10, the hand of the good shepherd, the hand of our heavenly father. John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Brothers and sisters, do you sense God's grip on your life lately? Can you look back on your life and see God did not let you go as far as you could have gone? Do what you could have done? Be with who you could have been with? Said what you could have said? And you go, I'm so glad I didn't do that. Have you ever just thought to wonder that was God's leash on you? That was God's hand on you? That was God's palm gripping you, keeping you from ruining your life, ruining your marriage, ruining your children, ruining your church, ruining your reputation, ruining your career. Friends, when we, it talks about God hemming David in, for me, it's kind of like bumper cars. That's what my whole life testimony feels like. Okay, Lord, I'm going to go this way. Boom. Okay, okay, I won't go that way. Lord, I'm going to go this way. Boom. Okay, all right, I get it, I get it. And I find myself constantly at times when I'm young, immature, selfish, and not thinking spiritually, ah, Lord, why won't you let me do that? This seems like a good idea. Lord, I've read the Bible, I've prayed. Why won't you let me do it? Why won't you let me have it? Why did you give me this? Why did you give me that? See those why questions? That's the Lord hemming Blake Boylston in for making a wreck of his life. 
Friends, think about this. Maybe you've tried to be friends with a certain person, date a certain person, marry a certain person, move to a certain place, buy a certain house, invest in a certain business, but for whatever reason, nothing came to fruition from it. Do you want to know why? God hemmed you in. Friends, it could even be where you and I have been super tempted to dive headfirst into sin. You're looking at something on the internet and poof, someone walks in the door. You're about to do something with a needle or a bottle and poof, someone calls you, interrupts the temptation. When you're going to inflict self-harm on yourself or go get a van and get out of Dodge and not tell anyone about it, for some reason the car wouldn't start. There was no gas in the van. There was traffic you couldn't get out of. Friends, God is squeezing each of us in more than we realize. But that squeezing in, that's a bear hug you don't want to resist. That fenced-in backyard field that you and I just want to jump over and go do whatever we want to do, friends, that's not a backyard we want to leave. God's hand is on our life And his hand is not prison. His hand is protection. God's hand on our lives isn't God out to get us. It's God out to save us. Sometimes it might not feel comfortable to have God's heavy and strong hand on our life. Always resting upon us. Always pushing us and pulling us back. But brothers and sisters, I would much rather have God's disciplining hand upon me rather than his back turned from me it is a mercy when God disciplines us it is a mercy when he says no and corrects and doesn't give us what we want it is a mercy when he puts limitations on our health on our economic status on counsel or corrections we get from our pastors or the civil magistrate or our parents it is a mercy that he doesn't let us live however we want to live Friends, in what ways have you been tempted to run, to hide, but the Lord keeps hemming you in? What's your testimony like? Friends, whatever it is, we should give thought to it, tell others about it, and be in awe that he loves us that much. That's what he says there in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. It should produce wonder and worship from our hearts. Knowing what we know that God knows about us, it is beyond our comprehension, isn't it? It's above our pay grade. It's way over my head. And David knows here, God is omniscient. And he loves it. Second, David now expresses how God is omnipresent. That means God is everywhere at once. Look at verses 7 to 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Here, David just takes two extreme contrasts in three verses. He's doing this in a poetic way to draw home a point. In verse 8, he contrasts heaven 
and Sheol. Heaven, speaking of God's holy and majestic presence above, and Sheol, which is that Hebrew understanding of the place of the dead, generally spoken of, of down deep, dark into the earth. The idea there is a contrast, really, really high up and really, really low. Then in verses 9 and 10, he contrasts the wings of the morning and uttermost parts of the sea. This is referring to most likely going east and west, where the direction of the Sea of Galilee was to the sun at dawn. Again, we've got up and down. Now we've got east and west. Verses 11 and 12, then David contrasts darkness and light, revealing the idea that possibly, or no, the possibility of being seen and hidden are one and the same. We cannot hide from God. Darkness to him is is the brightest part of the day for us. So what is David trying to communicate by these contrasts? Up, down, east, west, light, darkness. Look at verse 7. He raises the question, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? He's raising a good question. If I move to Canada, will God be with me? If I move to the UK across the pond, will God be with me? If I move to Alma or Barling or Fort Smith, will God be with me? If I move to Northwest Arkansas, will God be with me? The answer is a resounding yes. No matter where we live, no matter where we work, no matter where we sleep, no matter where we try to hide, We cannot escape from God. We cannot hide from Him. He's everywhere, all the time, all at once. William Plummer says, God's presence converts midnight into noon. David is fully aware that whether out of fear he wanted to run and hide or simply to comfort and calm his troubled soul, knowing that God's presence was with him at all times, in all circumstances, is what brought him real, lasting peace. Friends, how does God's omnipresence, everywhere at once, and his eminence, he's near and dwelling among us, how should that shape our understanding of the local church? God's presence among us. Well, friends, it teaches us that God is everywhere at once, And God is with us everywhere we go. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus' words? When he gave the great commission to make disciples of all nations, what did he say in Matthew 28, 18 to 20? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, Number one, I would say we need to think through God's omnipresence in our own church. It should encourage us and embolden us. It should encourage us and embolden us. So when Stephanie tells me she's sharing the gospel with a Jehovah's Witness at work, I can pray for God to give you boldness, but I can reassure you God's with you right here in this building, and he will be with you at work on Monday with that young lady. The same is true for all of us. At your cubicle, at your desk, Everywhere you go, the Lord is there. 
the Lord is there. It should embolden and strengthen us to be courageous followers of Jesus, not because we're courageous, but because Christ is with us. Number two, God's omnipresence and eminence, it should heighten and expand our vision of how we love and serve the church. It should heighten and expand our vision of how we love and serve the church. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? You is in the plural, speaking of the church, and that God's spirit dwells in you, literally means you all or y'all. If anyone destroys God's temple, i.e. God's church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Friends, that's why it is dangerous to be casual and trite with God's church. That's why it's dangerous to have someone unqualified fill the pulpit and preach God's word to God's people. That's why it's dangerous when pastors and church leaders think that they can re-engineer and recreate what the mission of the church should be like. It's not our church to begin with. It's His. And how we treat each other with love and respect, forgiveness and patience, how we speak to each other. Friends, every time you're on the phone with someone, texting someone, having a hallway conversation, a hard counseling meeting, a disagreement, a sharp disagreement, a deep disagreement, we should always remind ourselves, God is here. So before we have this meeting, we need to remind ourselves, God is here. God is here in this moment right now. He's meeting us through his word. God will be with us in the Lord's Supper tonight as we come together as one people at one bread, sharing the supper together. Members of CCBC, we should start praying as a church family, not just five people, for the presence of God to be so manifest among our congregation that when an unbeliever who hates God comes to this church against their will, they will walk away saying, God really is among them. So pray that we would be humble. Pray that our worship would be full of reverence and awe and order and joy and love. And that when we speak, we would make every word count. When we teach, we would go to the scriptures and we can be assured that God is among us. Isn't that good news? In Christ, there is no condemnation and in Christ, there is no separation. God is always with us. But thirdly, God's omnipotent. God's omnipotent. Look at verses 13 to 18. David says, For you form my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. On September 13, 1985, 
Friday the 13th, I might add. In Augusta, Georgia, David Blakeney Boylston was born. Jarena and David Boylston welcomed their firstborn, premature baby, two months early, weighing an astounding four pounds and 13 ounces, measuring at 17 and a half inches long. I wore cabbage patch doll clothes for an extended period because I was too little to wear normal baby clothes. My mom and dad told me, quote, the nurses nicknamed you Peanut because your bald head was shaped like a peanut. That's why I cannot go bald, y'all. I don't have to wear a toupee in the pulpit. You had no hair on your body. No fingernails. Ooh. I've seen pictures of me. It's not exciting. No fat under the skin. I thought you looked like E.T. So all the 80s and 90s people laugh. So when someone would come to the house, I would put a cap on your head because I was embarrassed. Today, I'm 38 years old. I'm six foot two, 210 pounds, married, three children, pastoring in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I have a blonde lab and a pickup truck. Sounds like a commercial. But most importantly, ever since April 15th of 1999, I'm a Christian. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. I was saved then. I'm being saved now. And by God's grace, I will be saved on the last day. The only reason that makes any logical sense that I'm standing on a stage preaching from God's Word to you in Fort Smith, Arkansas, 38 years later, is not because I was smart, it's not because I had it figured out, and it was not on my radar. I can tell you where I'm at today, it is because God willed it to happen. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, what is your testimony? What's your biography? Who are you? You are fearfully and wonderfully made by an all-knowing, omnipresent, wonderfully holy, amazingly loving God. He made you. He made you. He made your eye color. He determined how tall you would be. He determined what family you would grow up in. He determined what siblings you would have or not have. He determined how all these things would come to pass. Your DNA and your zip code, it is all in his book. It is all in his mind. It's been there since eternity past. That's what David says. Let me give you a summary of what David says in verses 13 to 16. God formed me in my mama's womb. God directed the sperm to the egg. God created the fetus. God decided what my height would be, what my eye color would be, who my family would be, what my upbringing would be like, and what God's calling on my life would be. David goes so far as to say that not every decade, not every year, not every month, but every day has been ordained, sovereignly inscribed by God in his mind before I was even born. And Don, that's true for you, brother. That's why there are no accidents. There are no plan B babies. It is God's sovereign design to knit us in the intricate depths of a mother's 
womb. From conception to conversion to glorification in heaven, God's unbreakable chain cannot be hindered or hurt by anyone. He is that sovereign over your life. God decides the length of every lifetime, even through the sinful decisions of others, even through the murderous hands of people wrongly, unjustly aborting their babies. God does not, he's not the author of sin, but nothing, not even a bird can fall from the ground apart from our Father. Every breath is in the hands of God. Friends, our lives are an hourglass turned over. Do you know that? Our lives are an hourglass turned over. There are specific pieces of sand in that hourglass God put there, and it's been turned over since the day you and I were born. Friends, how much time do you have left? How much time do we have left? We don't know, but God does. Every breath is in his hands. God never makes mistakes. As the Henry Martin, I believe it was, said, we are immortal until our work for God is finished. That's why David responds with such astounding knowledge of God's foreordaining of his life. He doesn't complain to God about it. He doesn't say, God, what were you thinking? God, I could have done better. So what he says in verses 17 and 18. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Friends, that's amazing. When's the last time you pondered your very existence as coming ultimately from this God? I pray it would lead us to worship and ease some of our worries and insecurities that we have about ourselves. Uh, David was also a man zealous for God's name. We've already covered much of this earlier in the sermon. Verses 19 to 22. David, because he loves God, he embodies a righteous anger. Uh, Jesus himself turned over tables in the temple when worship became corrupt in his day. Jesus also teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. We should love our enemies and pray for them. We should, too, hate sin out of love for God. How do we know if we have a sinful anger in our hearts towards someone versus a righteous anger? It's a good question. Are you more offended that your name and your ego have been pricked more than God's name and God's glory being smeared in the mud? Are you more offended that someone would treat you unfairly, you poorly, more than being God's name, being smeared in the mud? Friends, until we get our vertical right, 99.9999% of the time, our righteous anger is mixed with sinful anger. Our eyes need to be on him. He is the ultimate judge. He will judge justly on the last day. Brothers and sisters, that means we should be jealous for God's name to be glorified. We should be disturbed when his name is thrown around in the mud and blasphemed on TV shows, blasphemed 
through crude music, blaspheme through people's t-shirts at the mall. We should want to see justice done on the earth. We should want to uphold justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Friends, we should groan because of the sufferings of this present time, praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. False teaching should stress us out. Unhealthy churches should greatly concern us. Struggling sheep should burden us. And friends, when we see God's name, particularly the gospel in Jesus Christ's name, smeared in the mud, we should pray for boldness to speak up and suffer for the name. But David knew that he wasn't a perfect man. That's why David knew that even in his zeal, even in his intimate knowledge of God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and God's omnipotence to form his life, and even in David's zeal, that God would spite and smite his enemies. David exemplifies humility, that even the best of men are men at best. Look at verses 23 and 24. He makes this his prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Friends, we can never trust God too much, but we do trust ourselves too much. We can never trust God too much, but we do often trust ourselves too much. That's why we need to ask God to search us. He already knows we're the ones having to catch up with what's there. Investigate me, Lord. Thoroughly show me. Give me your Holy Spirit scan. And show me the idols of my heart. Show me fears that are hindering me from faith in you. Show it in my marriage. Show it in my children. Show it in my church. Show it in me. Many times people ask this question, Pastor Blake, what's God's will for my life? Well, friends, after you've just read in Psalm 139, all the details are in God's book. But I can tell you this, you're fearfully and wonderfully made by him. That means you are handcrafted perfectly in his eyes. We may see a child or an adult with some abnormalities and handicaps. They are different than us. They look different. They talk different. They act different. Friends, even through the sufferings of this life, even though the fall has wreaked havoc on sickness and suffering and death of even young children, every child that is conceived in the womb and every child both inside and outside the womb has tremendous value because you were made by God. It doesn't matter ultimately what other people think of you and me. You know whose opinion most matters? The Lord Jesus Christ. Chris Larson says, popularity is not success. Obscurity is not failure. Be amazed at the way God, in his sovereignty, has made, and if you're a Christian, remaking you into the image of Christ. Now, let me just give you one easy application here. Learn from others, but please be yourself. Learn from others, but be yourself. 
God only made one Ricky Manzano. And he did that on purpose. God only made one Chastity Manzano. And he did that on purpose. It is utter silliness to parrot or mimic or try to be just like someone else when God only made one of them and one of you for a really good purpose. What is God's will for your life? I don't know the details. He does. But I can tell you, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. What if you're here today and you say, Pastor Blake, I'm reading Psalm 139. I hear you, brother. I believe what it says, but I don't like how my life has turned out. Where was God when? If God knows everything, why? If he could have stopped this, then why didn't he? Brothers and sisters, one of the most painful realities of living in a fallen world is that we don't have all the answers on this side of heaven. God is the creator. We are the creature. We stress ourselves out unnecessarily when we try to think and be like the creator when we can't. Martha Shell Nicholson once penned an amazing poem that highlights what do you do knowing that God's sovereign and your life is filled with pain. Listen to this poem. I stood a beggar of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out of his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast giveth me. The Lord said, my child, I give good gifts, and I gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, has long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Every thorn, every storm, every wicked opponent, every loss, every cross we're called to bury. Friends, God uses it all to pin back the veil that we can see Jesus and his lovely face all the better. Through our sufferings, we see Christ in his loveliness better than without them. In the intro of my sermon, I raised this question, how should God's incomprehensible, intimate, and inspecting knowledge of us transform our intense pursuit of knowing, delighting, and trusting in Him? It should produce wonder and worship to God. It should produce righteous passions that align with God's glory and character. It should produce humility and repentance that welcomes God's thorough inspection of our hearts. In Christ, there is no more condemnation before God. In Christ, there is no more separation from God. And in Christ, even when he shows us our sins and our idols 
and he calls us to kill them. He is doing that to lead us on the way of everlasting. Search our hearts, O God. Try me and see if there be any grievous thing or way in me. And lead me to the way of everlasting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is amazing. It is mind-blowing. It is convicting and it is comforting to know that you have an exhaustive knowledge on us. Everywhere you go, you are with us. And in your sovereign omnipotence, we exist because you willed it. Our lives are an hourglass turned over. They are in your hands. Lord, make us bold, make us strong, make us confident, knowing that wherever we go, whatever you call us to face, we're not alone. Lord, search our hearts. Show us ways, attitudes, thoughts, desires, idols that are hindering us from seeing your lovely face. And Lord, as you use sufferings and trials to pin back the veil, uh, Lord, we know that our joy will be complete once we see your lovely face. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.